Good evening. It was about 10 years ago that an article appeared in our local newspaper, and the headline read, Women in the Church Moving Toward Equality. And that headline grabbed my attention, and I want you to understand, I'm not the kind of person that is an alarmist, nor am I a brotherhood watchdog person. I don't comment on every Facebook post that is different than my view. I do not clip out every newspaper article and pass it around. Nothing surprises me in the church anymore. Really, nothing in society surprises me anymore, and so I don't get all bent out of shape about every article. But this one caught my attention because women in the church moving toward equality, I thought, how sad and disheartening that there's a church in town that's just now moving toward equality. And I don't think I would be advertising that. If I'm just now moving toward equality, that's a bad thing. Gender equality is not a new concept. It's been around for a long time, right? And within the article, this was quoted. It said, we strive to be a gender-inclusive church of Christ. Again, I was intrigued. Gender-inclusive church of Christ. I've never been a part of any church, much less a church of Christ that was gender-exclusive. I've never gone to a church that was full of only males. And I'm sure you haven't either. But of course, as you read the article, you saw that the language was couched in an agenda. And the agenda was promoting women to positions of leadership within the church. More specifically, they were looking to promote women preachers. Now, this is a subject that hits close to home. I mean, again, this was in our local newspaper. It hits close to home for some of you. Some of you have been on the front lines of this discussion. Some of you have sat in elder meetings where this was discussed. Some of you have sat in the pew when it was announced that there were going to be some changes made and you felt hurt, maybe betrayed. I have a twofold mission tonight. The first one is I want to dissect two passages of Scripture. And the second part of my mission is I, I want you to feel comfortable as you leave here tonight and go forward concerning Oldham Lane and the direction that we are going on this topic or any topic, really. Because I can tell you that a lot of times when someone comes into a church and they ask the elders questions, sometimes those questions concern things like, well, is there anything that I need to know before I place my membership here? Are y'all having any troubles? Is there any issues with the preacher or the youth minister or any of that? Folks, I can tell you, we have none of that. I can honestly stand here and look you in the eye and say, we don't have any issues right now, knock on wood. We hope not to have any going forward, but this is a very healthy church right now. But something else I can tell you with full faith and honesty is that this is a church that believes in rightly dividing the Word of God. This is a church that believes wholeheartedly in holding the Bible and the Holy Scriptures in highest esteem. We want to seek to answer the question, what is God saying when we go to His Word? Not what do I want God to say, not what is culture saying, but what does God say on any and every issue? I think you know me well enough to know that I don't seek to be politically correct, probably to a fault at times. I don't care about societal trends. I care what the Word of God has to say because I'm a preacher of that Word and I'm going to be judged by that. 
And I think there are two passages of Scripture that relate to this, this subject as much as any. And the first one's found in Galatians 3.28. It says very simply, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You want to know what Galatians 3.28 is about? It's about kingdom equality. That's what it's about. Plain and simple. It's about kingdom equality. That's the gist of the message. That's the major takeaway. If you're looking at a passage and saying, what's the major takeaway here? That's it. Kingdom equality. In fact, Paul's major emphasis in chapters 3 and 4 of Galatians is that being baptized into Christ makes one an heir according to promise. In fact, he uses that same phraseology in verse 29. Heir according to promise. What gets lost so often because people want to use Galatians 3.28 as a proof text for why women can serve in leadership positions in the church, what often gets missed is that fact that this is about kingdom equality. This is about how that in the kingdom we all have equal status. The Jews didn't believe that, which is why Paul's bringing it up. To the Jew, Gentiles didn't have equal standing in the kingdom. To the Jew, women didn't have equal standing in the kingdom. To the Jew, slaves didn't have equal standing in the kingdom. But now in Christ, we have kingdom equality. To the Jew, you had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Therefore, the only way you could be saved was if you converted to Judaism. That's the context. And it's very important. Because Galatians 3, verse 28, and Galatians 3 as a whole, has nothing to do with gender roles. Underline that in your Bible and write it in the margins. This has nothing to do with gender roles. That's not what Paul's talking about. Context means everything, and it bothers me that biblical scholars and Bible teachers would take a context like this and pervert it in a way that promotes some sort of agenda that had nothing to do with what Paul was speaking of. This is not about gender role. This is about kingdom equality. Paul's primary point in Galatians 3 isn't even about gender. He's not giving some earth-shattering insight into the role of men and women in the church. This is about Jew and Gentile. This is about the law of Moses versus the, the grace of God. This is about salvation through Jesus Christ versus salvation through the law. Context is everything. And the context of Galatians 3 has nothing to do with gender roles. We are all heirs. We have all been saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. All, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, man, woman. All of us. We all have equal status in the kingdom. But along with context, we have to understand that we cannot interpret a, pas a passage of Scripture that doesn't coincide with other passages of Scripture. You've heard me say before, a passage cannot mean something that it was never intended to mean to begin with. And so when you look at the application here in Galatians 3, what you're looking at is a threefold purpose. Number one, no one has to be circumcised. That's an application that you get from this. No one has to follow the law of Moses anymore in order to be saved. You receive your adoption as sons through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you can go back and read chapters 3 and 4 in their entirety to see that play out. Secondly, male Christians 
should treat female Christians with honor and respect. Jews should treat Gentiles with honor and respect. Masters should treat slaves with honor and respect because all are adopted children of the Heavenly Father. All are heirs according to promise. And the third application is talking about how, again, there is kingdom equality. So, that's the context of Galatians 3.28. To twist this piece of Scripture and to make it stand as a proof text for women preachers is just really bad exegesis. It's not bad Greek, it's just not even Greek. Let's move on to another passage. 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it, was, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. But women will be pres uh, preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, there's a whole lot to digest there. Let me just say that Christians who promote a more egalitarian view will often suggest that 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15 was written for a specific people at a specific time. That time and that purpose has passed. And therefore, it was never intended to be an injunction that lasted all time. That these words don't have application and meaning for us today because it was a specific time and place and women have been liberated, everything is different now, and therefore we need to read the scriptures differently. I've even heard professors say, Paul was wrong here. Here's the major takeaway from this passage. Meekness is not weakness. Now in our culture it is, right? To submit in our culture is not a good thing. That's not a virtue. Especially when you're talking about women submitting to men. Well, that's a rather archaic way of thinking and a rather chauvinistic way of thinking in our culture. Any doctrine that says a woman needs to submit to a man is oppressive, right? But I would submit that the one who thinks this way does not have a full grasp of submission from a biblical viewpoint. Submission is a theme throughout the entire New Testament, is it not? And it's not just women who were to submit. Christ's entire character and ministry was about submission. I mean, he washed people's feet. He said, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. He came not to be served, but to serve. He submitted to crucifixion for our sake. He says in John chapter 5 and verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. Jesus was all about submission. He came to teach us submission. And you know, there is a passage in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, where it talks about wives submit to your husbands. And what we often overlook is it also talks about men submitting as well. It talks about Christ submitting as well. We all are in subjection. We all must be submissive. Everyone must practice meekness and submissiveness. But we are wrong to assume that to submit or be submissive 
is like being a trained dog. And therefore, as a man and as a husband, if I tell my wife to do something, she has to do it or she's going to get beaten with a rolled up newspaper. That's not what submission means in a biblical text, in a biblical sense. Paul is referring to something that would be similar to me carrying my wife across the threshold on our wedding night. Paul is referring to something similar to me opening the car door for my wife. I do that because I love her. And she allows me to do that because she loves me and she loves God. So this submissiveness that we're talking about is very different than what our culture wants to zero in and focus on. Folks, please, please hear me on this. None of this that we're talking about in either one of these passages has anything to do with equality. This is not about me being better than my wife. This is not about men being better than women. Although that's how we often portray these texts, that's not the message that is being sent. This is about our unique role and responsibility. And what is the basis of all of this? Is it culture? You can read through the text again. It absolutely is not culture. And the reason why is because God had the foresight to see that culture is an absolutely terrible standard for anything. There are things that are readily accepted today that even 10 or 20 years ago, no one wanted to talk about or accept at all. Culture can't be your standard. Culture shifts all the time. There's nothing in culture that you can, that you can point to and say, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. That's my standard. It's like nailing jello to a tree. So culture can't be your standard. It's changing all the time. It doesn't even know what it believes. And if you've noticed in culture, there are some societal trends where they're eating each other because they don't know what they believe. What does God have to say about it? That's the standard. And here's something else. It doesn't matter if you like that. I've heard people say, well, I, I just can't buy that. Who cares? I just can't believe, the, or, or we portray God in some way, well, the God I believe in, yeah, I understand, but that's not the God of the Bible. It doesn't matter if you like it. It's not up for a vote. These things have been decided. And I can't help but think that a, a, a major reason why we want to re-decide these things is because we want to fit God into some agenda that we have. We turn to Scripture for the standard, and notice what Scripture has to say concerning the role of women. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. Was Paul talking about something cultural here? I mean, he's talking about an attitude. He's talking about an attitude that transcends time. It's not so much what a woman wears as what's on the inside. He's saying let your actions and your attitude be what draws attention to you rather than what you wear on the outside. Paul's talking about humility and submissiveness and godliness. It's about character. And character doesn't go out of style. In fact, the whole passage is saturated with this idea of women understanding their submissive role in the church and subsequently in life. The wording is what bothers people. And to be honest with you, I can understand that. If you're not a Christian, if you're just reading this for the first time, yeah, you can, you can see. 
that it bothers you a little bit. Maybe Paul is chauvinistic, or maybe he's degrading to women, but when you study it further, when you dig deeper into the context of it, and you look at what Paul is actually saying, he is setting forth a truth that we see in other places. We see it in 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 15. We see it in 1 Corinthians 14, 28 through 34. And the truth is this, when it comes to the role of women in the church, there are things that they can do, there are things that they cannot do, and each and every case, the grounds for the distinction is what? Creation order. That's not cultural. Now, you don't have to like that, but it is what it is. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Transgression, But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Does that sound like a, like a cultural thing? I mean, it's an appeal to creation order. Paul takes it back to the very beginning. And when a New Testament teaching is based in the historical facts of creation, then it cannot be dismissed as cultural. And by the way, we're trying to figure out why it changes my fonts and everything when I send it into PowerPoint, because that's not the way I put that up there. Sorry. Now, there, I think there are a couple of things worth mentioning here. I think we have to appeal to logic and reason. Sometimes we swing the pendulum too, too far the other way, and we get absurd in our teaching and rendering of these passages. For instance... The phrase, remain quiet here. Paul uses that phrase, but it does not mean that a woman is never to speak. It's not what that means. If it did mean that, then every one of you women that are sitting here tonight have sinned because you sang. So it can't mean that. What it means is a quiet demeanor, a spirit that is peaceable instead of argumentative. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, Paul writes, The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Understand the word segeo there was never intended to mean complete and utter silence. Again, if it was, you are sinning. It doesn't mean that a woman cannot answer a question or ask a question in Bible class. It's not what it means. If that were the case, we have some women in our church that can never learn, ever. Because if it meant complete and utter silence, well... They can't ask a question at church. They have to remain completely and utterly silent. And if they're a widow or never been married, they can't ask their husband when they get home. So they are always going to be ignorant. Can't ask a question. That's silly. So what did Paul mean here? Well, again, what he's talking about when he says keep silent, he's approaching, again, context means everything. He's approaching a situation in Corinth where apparently there were some argumentative and some overbearing women who wanted to take charge. And so that's the context of what he's dealing with here. In 1 Corinthians 14, we find that one who has the gift of speaking in tongues, man or woman, is to keep silent if he has no interpreter. If a brother is speaking and another receives a more current revelation, then the former is to keep silent. And then, of course, he approaches these women keeping silent. 
The first two prohibitions demand silence only in the matters being discussed by Paul. They do not forbid one to speak in any and every situation. And the same is true for the women here. It doesn't change when he gets to them. Paul is not saying that they are never ever to speak. But rather he's talking about a situation where they are to be, remain peaceable. The issue at hand is usurping authority. And so a woman singing is not usurping authority. A woman asking a question in Bible class is not usurping authority. That's not the context of what Paul is talking about. If that were the case, then a child could never ask his parent a question, or a child could never ask the teacher at school a question. There are some who take matters even further by suggesting that, you know, women can never teach. But when you think about it, our women teach half the church. And I'm glad of that, right? I mean, most congregations, half of it is made up of women and children. And our women play a very important role in that. How about a woman teaching a Bible class where a young man has been baptized? Some would say, no, he's got to get out of there or she's got to get out of there. She can't teach a young boy that's 9 or 10 or 11, 12, 13, just got baptized. Folks, that's ridiculous. Being baptized doesn't make you a man. Just because you came out of the waters of baptism doesn't mean that you're now a man. I mean, those same rules, would we apply them to school? Now the teacher has no authority over him. Now his parents don't have any authority over him. So we can't get silly with it. We just understand it for what it is. And the context that we need to keep in mind when approaching all these texts is Paul is addressing role and responsibility, and his basis for doing so is always creation order. And I, I think it's important that we talk about what our women can do instead of always focusing on what they can't do. I think the church has done a grave disservice by only talking about women in the context of doing bulletin boards and cooking a meal. Obviously, teaching is a very important role. Can, can a, a woman, a Christian woman, teach one who is lost, male or female? Of course. The Great Commission applies to her as much as it does everybody else. The issue at hand is usurping authority. And we need to keep that in mind. We need to not get ridiculous, but at the same time, we don't need to be too loose either. Here's the deal. We are all equal in the kingdom of God, but we don't all share the same roles and responsibilities. Equality does not mean that there are no distinctions. Unfortunately, the discussion about the role of women in the church often turns into a debate about essence and worth. Have you noticed that? It seems that some always want to turn it into a discussion about essence and worth, and it has nothing to do with that. This isn't about essence and worth. We're all equal. The discussion about the role of women and the discussion that Paul was having at the heart of the matter, has nothing to do with essence or worth. Not every man will be a preacher. Not every man will be an elder. Not every man will be a deacon. Not every man will be a father or a husband, just as not every woman will be a wife or a mother or teach a Bible class. But that doesn't change the fact that in order to be a mother, you have to be a woman. To be qualified to be an elder, you have to be a man. That's not demeaning to women. Just as it's not demeaning to a man that he can't be a mother. I've used this illustration before, but our dynamics here has changed so much I could probably preach a lot of sermons over again and 
Maybe you wouldn't remember. In his book, Good to Great, author Jim Collins compares a business to a bus and the leader as a bus driver. And here's an excerpt from his book. He says, you are a bus driver. The bus, your company, is at a standstill. And it's your job to get it going. You have to decide where you're going, how you're going to get there, and who is going with you. Most people assume that great bus drivers immediately start the journey by announcing to the people on the bus where they're going, by setting a new direction, or by articulating a fresh corporate vision. In fact, leaders of companies that go from good to great start not with where, but with who. They start by getting the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and the right people in the right seats. And they stick with that discipline. First the people, then the direction, no matter how dire the circumstances. So according to Collins, having a successful business is not just about getting people on the bus, it's about getting the right people in the right seats on the bus. Fill the key seats with the key people. And we see God doing this throughout Scripture, don't we? We see Him doing this over and over again, even within the church. All of God's people are valuable. Every church member brings something to the table. Paul talked about that in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Everyone has a role. Everyone has a responsibility. However, not everyone has the same role or responsibility. We all have equal standing, but equal standing is not the same thing as equal responsibility. In Numbers chapter 16. Verses 1 through 3, it says, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, and the sons of Eliab, and on the sons of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You've gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Do you see Korah's argument? Korah's argument is what makes Moses and Aaron so special. We're all holy in the sight of God. Why do they get special role and responsibility? Well, we know why, because God chose them, right? But Korah didn't want to see that. And you could read the rest of Numbers 16 to see how that worked out for him. But folks, just because you fill a key seat on the bus, or just because, just because you have a role or responsibility that's different than someone else's, doesn't mean that your role or responsibility is any less important. Notice it says, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation, to minister to them, and that he has brought you near, Korah, and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? Are you seeking for the priesthood also? Korah was a Levite, which meant he had a special privilege before God. He got to serve in ways that others didn't. In other words, Korah had responsibilities that excluded others, and he didn't seem to have a problem with that. He wanted every other role and responsibility, especially when it came to being a leader like Moses and Aaron. And he had to be told, basically, that's not how this thing works. Not everyone has the same role and responsibility. even though they were all special to God. 
it didn't mean that they all shared the same role and responsibility. To those who might say, well, this isn't fair. To those who might say, why can't I use my talents for God? It's not fair. I, I would ask this question. Why do you have such a narrow view of Christian service? Why do you have such a narrow view that you believe the only way you can serve is by preaching or saying a prayer? That's like 1% of your Christian service. What about the other 99% that occurs during the week? Why only focus on that 1%? In Philippians 2, 5-7, through 7, Paul writes, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus still considered himself equal to God, but he took on the form of a servant. And what a great example that is for all of us. Whether you're a man or a woman, just serve. Just dig in. Just roll up your sleeves and get to work. When you make your church's message about something other than Jesus and the gospel, it ceases to be the church of Christ. Why not focus on just digging in and serving? The best elders, the best deacons are those who humbly serve. And so anytime I hear of a woman or a group of women who are, who are pushing to be leaders in the church, my first thought is that's exactly why they don't need to be leaders in the church. Same with men. Any man that is pushing for the office of elder and trying to gather a posse so that he can, he can get some people to push him into that role, you're not qualified any longer. The people I want serving in that role are the people who say, I, I don't know if I'm going to be good at that, but I, I mean, I'll do it. I'm, I'm not sure that I'm the right guy for the job, but I'll do it. I'll do my best. I'll humbly serve. The very fact that anyone is pushing for that shows me that that's not the right attitude. And that's not who we want in those positions. Women or men who do that are certainly disqualified. Take a lesson from Jesus. Although he was equal to God, he emptied himself and he served. And may we all do the very same thing because we're all equal. There's no denying that. We're all equal and you can't debate that. There is no distinction in our essence or our worth. None. Our roles are different. That's it. So I would say let's do our job. Let's glorify our God. Let's carry out our role to the best of our ability. Let's remember what comes first and who comes first. And if you want more information about this, this is a great book. Women in the Church, it's a very thorough book. I mean, very thorough. It's not light reading. But I would suggest that you pick it up. And there's others out there. If you'd like me to kind of pass them your way, then I'll do that as well. But hopefully, you know where we're coming from here at the Oldham Lane Church of Christ what we believe, where we stand when it comes to this issue. And, and if you spend enough time here, you'll know where we stand on the other issues as well. The biggest thing is any kind of cultural trend or things that are going on in society around us are always going to seep their way into the church. It always happens. 
we can either adapt and adjust and let those things come in and rework our theology, or we can confront them and say, okay, let's remember who we are, what the standard is, and let's go back to that. And that is our policy here. That is what we believe with our leadership, with our staff, hopefully you as well. If you have other questions, feel free to email. Let me know. Again, we can't cover it all in one setting, but we'd certainly be glad to answer any questions you have. Let's close with an invitation tonight. If there's a need that you might have, if you need the prayers and support of this church family, or perhaps you're, you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, maybe begin that daily walk with God, or whatever need you might have, we encourage you to come as Jim leads us in a song. Come now as we stand and as we sing.